Hello listener, and welcome to Mind Milk Theory. I remain your host, sometimes contemporary artist, Jim Lockie. We're continuing our series on Beowulf today, and I'm really excited about this episode. So, I've been spending lots of time looking at Anglo-Saxon visual art, and there's some interesting parallels with the Beowulf poem. So let's get into it. Interlaced patterning is a hallmark of early Anglo-Saxon art. Tight patterns of knotted creatures, like snakes that writhe over and under each other's extended tails, or wild boars whose backs intertwine to create one arch. In some ways, this interlace was similar to Celtic knotwork, or maybe this religious knot art could be seen as a subset or sister of Anglo-Saxon interlace, as the two are often confused, conflated, and eventually were conjoined. In Anglo-Saxon interlace specifically though, those knotty patterns often had heads and legs and turned out to be the abstracted bodies of beasts. These beasts made reference to the natural world and to the gods and beliefs of old. For instance, Woden's raven appears and snakes reminiscent of Jormungandr were common choices. However, that isn't to say that interlace was abandoned by Anglo-Saxons of later Christian dispensation. It made its way into the Lindisfarne Gospels manuscript, where elaborate carpet pages synthesised the zoomorphic Saxon beasts with precise Celtic knots and geometric design which may have been influenced by Islam. Interlace survived and morphed with the culture. Like with all forms of art, interlace didn't spring from nowhere, but it emerged from its circumstances, the daughter of its influences and the father of the work it would influence. Anglo-Saxon interlace, appropriately, is woven into the entire tapestry of art history. I believe there is something to be learned about the people who made it through understanding what the draw of this patterning was. Think about interlace as part of that big tapestry of art I alluded to. For a moment it was thrown up for a time as a bright thread in England, amongst a people who were preoccupied with the idea of weaving an old faith with new religious perspective, and with finding their place in a land dislocated from their history. But before we dive into that more, I want to think about what practical influences could explain the prevalence of this patterning. The Anglo-Saxons were master jewellers, and interlace suited the fine work and skill of its craftspeople. The Normans, who came later, didn't have this same skill, or maybe not the same desire for fine metalwork, and made their artistic cultural statements in stone architecture and big, bombastic, representative art. So, in a sense, the art form of interlace patterning was informed by the intricacy of the mediums the Anglo-Saxons favoured. Jewellery and manuscript illumination were the dominant forms. I've been making my own interlace drawings and paintings in recent weeks, inspired by the art of the period, what I found is that creating the construction grid for an intricate knot is time-consuming. 
but as I sketched, I remembered reading that manuscript scribes would make pinhole marks in their vellum to mark out the lines for writing. They would sometimes use a tool, much like a stitch marking wheel, that could make a line of dots quickly and could conceivably be repurposed to create a grid for an interlaced design. Through my tactile experimentation, making my own interlaced patterns, I found myself reaching and longing for tools that would have been close to hand for manuscript scribes. I wonder if that is perhaps not by accident. Speaking as an artist, which, to be honest, I'm infinitely more qualified to do than I am to speak about history, I'm really interested by this idea that the tools to hand dictated the aesthetic of the artistic output, and not always the other way around. We know that our language affects the way we think. Perhaps, too, the tools we provide ourselves with influence our aesthetic perspective. That would certainly explain a few Instagram trends, as well as the prevalence of interlace within Anglo-Saxon art. A fascinating thing about Anglo-Saxon poetry is that we find a method of storytelling that is reminiscent of the interlace style in their visual art. Look at the way Beowulf treats its narrative. There is little regard for a linear plot. Instead, we are constantly led down seemingly unconnected threads of historical context or projected future events, only to be brought back around into the main through line of the story. Each thread proposes, reinforces and echoes the themes of the piece in a palimpsest. Or like beast's teeth sunk into the heel of a morphed and stretched plot that twists over its own body like a serpent. Am I leaning too much on the metaphor here? Perhaps. But I think it's justified, this interlace that is so alien to the way we tell stories today creates a striking and surprising narrative that causes no small amount of head-scratching in new readers, but that cannot fail to then excite anyone who sticks around for the poem's conclusion. Thinking about it, that's part of what gives the dragon of Beowulf's final battle its terrible power. It is the culmination of promises set out throughout the poem, it is the inevitable doom that was telegraphed since page one. It is at the head of an intricately woven serpent, like trying to understand the direction of bodies on an interlaced brooch. It is hard to tell if the dragon is an end or whether that battle scene was driving the poem from the start. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Our music is by Prod Riddiman. You can find him on the internet. And uh, I'll speak to you again in the new year. Bye.